Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are passionate about leading people onward in their Jesus journey. Good morning. Is it not fun to have little babies up here? Is it not fun to see God as the author of life? And may we see him as that way in every area of our lives. I mean, that is, he is the author of life. And, and by the way, even when you think of um, the, the scary thing that happens at the end of life, which is death, we as Christians, um, we really don't die. We relocate into eternity with King Jesus. You hear me? I mean, I, I praise the Lord. I mean, it's good. It's actually life um, unto life. It's just crossing over this little thin shroud of death as we, as we move through. So he is the God of life. Um, I want to look in line at our camera and just say welcome to anyone who's joining us online. I know we've got a growing community on there. Um, please feel free if you have questions or want to get connected, make comments, and we'll do our best to field those um, and, and get you tied in uh, with our church here. Um, I am in John 18. We have been going through the book of John. Uh, John is one of... Uh, I, you know, if you really got me to tell the truth, I really love most of the Bible. Um, but John's one of my favorite books, and I'll probably say that about most of them. Um, but John is one of my favorite books because it's written by a guy who was referred to as John the Beloved. And how about being known as John the Beloved? If, if Jesus um, and, and the other disciples re refer to you as John the Beloved. So I've, I often put myself there. Lord, could I um, walk with you with such an in, in such an intimate way that I could be Michael the Beloved? Put yourself there the beloved, a son, a daughter. So here we are, and John is coming to the end of um, the, the life of Jesus. He's getting ready to be crucified. Um, this is really this um, beautiful crescendo, I think, to the 12 disciples, or really the 11, because Judas has now betrayed him. But to the 11 disciples, this feels like the end. They're, they're experiencing this turmoil and this doubt and these questions. And yet, to those of us who walk with Jesus, this is just like launch pad beginning. This is absolutely crescendo where King Jesus is coming to earth to rule and reign and establish his lordship over the darkness, over death, over sin. So that is really what's happening um, here. So I'm going to start uh, in verse 28. Um, and what's just happened, if you were here last week, if you weren't, you can go back and, and look at it. But what's just happened is Peter denied Jesus and that either rooster crowed or that little trumpet um, blasted. And uh, then we're going to pick up in John 18, verse 28. I'm reading out of the NIV. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas, so Caiaphas is the high priest, to the palace of the Roman governor. Okay, so that's still in Jerusalem. So now they're at the palace of the Roman governor. By now, it was early morning. So you're coming up on sunrise at this point. And we said before, but I think it's important to carry, um, because this has all happened in the middle of the night, what is the sort of primary motive of the religious leaders who are doing this? Secrecy. They've, it's cloaked in secrecy. It's cloaked in darkness. So they're just now making it um, to the Roman governor's uh, uh, palace. So by now it's early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. I mean, sometimes you read the Bible and you're like, what? They 
did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. They wanted to avoid ceremonial uncleanness. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? So let's just pause here and and take a a look at that. Um, You have a group of religious people, and under the Mosaic law, if you enter into a house that has um, yeast or you enter into a house that has... um, uh, is a Gentile home, you would be unclean, and it would take you 24 hours to be, ceremonial clean, uh, to be ceremonially clean again. Therefore, because Passover was this afternoon, if they entered into the house, they would miss what? They'd miss dinner. So these guys are sitting out here, and they're going, I don't want to miss dinner. I don't want to enter into this house, because if I do, I'm going to miss the Passover meal. Um, perhaps they liked lamb. I don't know. But they are staying outside, and I think this, there's this um, profound irony that you have to see here in this moment. And it's not lost on John. Um, but by entering uh, a Gentile house before Passover, um, they, they couldn't have eaten this meal. What's happening here is there's a profound irony, because these religious leaders, leaders are saying, we want to be ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean. We refuse to enter into uh, the palace of, of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. But what's crazy is while they're refusing or while they're trying to remain ceremonial clean, so externally clean, they are simultaneously trying to crucify who? Jesus. So you get this huge irony where they're cleaning the outside sort of of the cup and they're neglecting what's going on inside the heart. They have this wickedness and evil of heart that is growing up inside of them and yet they're trying to look good, sound good, be presentationally good so that they can go and eat this meal. Make sense? All right, so this, this sort of irony is being unfurled. Now, let me also say, because this, this is now, anytime we look at the Scripture, what we want to do is we want to look at the Scripture, and then you really want to pivot and look at us today and go, okay, how can we take this theological framework and make it practical for today? So um, let, me, let me just make a, a, a sentence, or say a sentence here. A similar tragedy is recreated in our hearts and minds when we depend on fulfilling certain observances um, to alleviate our consciences before God. So receiving baptism, dedicating our kids, taking communion, attending church, offering prayer, giving money, showing up to set up, serving on Sunday mornings. None of those things in and of themselves are bad, but if you're using them as a way to clean the outside without truly um, asking Jesus to become your lamb, to become the lamb of God, dying the death that you could not die, paying the debt you couldn't pay, and then appropriating the resurrection life of Jesus into you, none of those things in and of themselves will save you. You hear me? That's one of the reasons we actually don't pass an offering plate. I'm not against passing an offering plate. I don't think it's bad. I'm glad Caitlin pointed that out. Um, But we sit it out there just to say, is you giving of your money important? Yes, because it's an indicator of where your heart is. But I don't want you to do it in front of anybody. You hear me? I don't want anyone to come in here. If someone comes in off the streets and they've never been to church, um, if they don't know God, I don't want them to feel like this is a club and I have to like drop some dues in the plate. You hear what I'm saying? We do the same thing with the yellow truck. The yellow truck goes out to serve. If you don't know that little yellow truck, um, it's like this little evangelism machine that goes out to share Jesus and serve coffee. It's amazing. But we never put a tip jar on that truck. We don't want people to feel obligated. So I, I think this great risk as I look at Jesus before Pilate, as I look at these Jewish leaders, 
leaders right off the bat is you have a group of people who have focused on cleaning up the exterior um, and neglected deeper matters of the heart. And the risk with us as Christians is we sort of learn the new rules of how to do Christianity or be Christian, and we think as long as we're doing those things that our hearts before God are okay. You hear me? Now, all of those things that I just talked about, being baptized, taking communion, dedicating your children, giving of your finances, joining a small group, showing up early and serving, all of that is good, and all of that can be an outward expression of a heart posture that is surrendered to the Lord Jesus, but those things by themselves will not save you. You follow me? So one of the things we try to do around here is extend lots of freedom and grace, because I'm convinced when people taste and see the freedom and grace of the Lord Jesus, then all of a sudden they begin to come, come alive and of their own free will and volition, they want to give, they want to serve, they want to dedicate their kids. And I believe we are convinced that in this environment of freedom, that's how people truly come alive and taste and see that the Lord is good. <clears throat> okay, as we head into this next section, um, I, I just want to point something out before we get into it, because I think it's, it's unusual. There's a bizarre sort of rhythm that is about to take place. And you have Pilate who walks outside the house, because who's there? It's the palace and his house. But outside the house, who's there? Big old mob of Jewish leaders, right? Because they refuse to come inside. So he walks outside and he talks to the Jewish leaders. Then he goes back inside the house. And who's he talk to? King Jesus is inside the house. He's probably in some manner of chains. He's got a Roman garrison of some sort around him. And then Pilate goes back outside to talk to who? The Jews. And then he goes back inside to talk to Jesus. And then a final time he goes back outside to talk to the Jews. So I want you to notice this back and forth because what I actually want to unfold here, something that is, I think, so powerful, is there is a war going on in Pilate's heart. Okay? And you're going to see the war, like it unfolds. And what's amazing to me is if you read the Gospel of Matthew, um, I don't even know, it's actually later, I'm jumping ahead, but in the Gospel of Matthew 27, 18, if you want to look it up, um, but Pilate's wife actually has a dream warning her not, uh, for Pilate not to have anything to do with this innocent man named Jesus. Now why am I telling you that? Okay, remember, all the Jews have come in. They are, you know, wanting Jesus to die. Pilate is now responsible for making a, a, a verdict, judging and deciding whether or not Pilate is going to be, or whether or not Jesus is going to be contemned to death. And the, the moment uh, the Romans came in and took over um, Palestine, they actually took the right um, to uh, kill as punishment away from the Jews, okay? So they took the right uh, for capital punishment away from the Jews. It's one of the, the, the rights that the Jews lost. So all these Jewish people come. They say, kill um, this Jesus who claims to be the king of the Jews. Now it's on Pilate's shoulders. So while this is happening, Matthew actually tells us that Pilate gets a note via one of his soldiers that his wife has had this dream, have nothing to do with Jesus. Now here's what I want you to see. Up until the very last moment, this gracious, kind Heavenly Father is always reaching out to people. Always, always, always. You are never too far gone. You've never done too much. You've never failed too much. He will keep on reaching until that very last moment. I love to see the heart of God here. Okay, let's keep going. 
Okay, so Pilate says outside the palace, what charges are you bringing against this man? And they say, if he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. In other words, just kill him. We don't even want to talk about it. Okay. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. So what do we, you know, Pilate gets this horrible rap. He's kind of like Judas. And we, we took a different look at Judas last week. But what do we immediately see here about Pilate? He doesn't want to do this. Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone they objected. Okay, so they, they legally, they're not supposed to execute anybody. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus said in John 12 that he had to be lifted up, uh, meaning lifted up on a cross, crucified, and that as he was lifted up and died, he would draw all men and women to himself. Now, think with me just a second. If the Jews would have killed Jesus, those of you who've read maybe more of the Old Testament, um, how would they have done it? They'd have thrown big rocks at him until he died. Had the Jews stoned Jesus, who would have seen? A very small percentage of people. It would have been a, a mostly private event. There might have been whoever was actually present, 30 people, 50 people, who knows. Um, when that would have happened, it, he would have been surrounded by people. Very few people could have seen in over the crowd of about 15 to 20 people. You follow what I'm saying? It would have been a, almost a private death. So, but, but the way Jesus foretold from John 12 that he had to die, he was going to be lifted up. And what's fascinating is the hill called Golgotha is right outside the old city walls in Jerusalem. It's taller than the old city walls. So when Jesus was, um, he got up to the top of that hill and they pounded those nails into his hands and into his feet and then they stood that cross up and it chunked into place. He was on display for the entire city of Jerusalem, anyone passing through Palestine and probably the 2.5 million Jews that gathered in Jerusalem uh, for Passover. So anywhere that you were, you could have turned and you would have seen Golgotha and you would have seen who? Jesus. So it became this public thing that Jesus was crucified. And I think that is so important because he died um, for all men and all women. And then he also died. Um, he, he became a sin for us. And it couldn't be like if, if only 30 people saw him, could it have been refuted? Possibly. So, so by even the way God did this, and what I love about the Bible is if you actually look at the Bible, um, biblically, historically, archaeologically, it holds water. Like, it's amazing. Like, it hangs together. And there are people that will tell you otherwise, and there are scholars. But if you get into the Palestinian world, understand what the Scripture is saying. Look at the historical narrative. Look at the biblical narrative. It hangs together. Okay. Pilate said, um, okay, we have no right to execute him. Jesus said, um, sort of prophetically telling the kind of death he was going to die. Verse 33, Pilate goes back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? I love Jesus. Composed, calm, together. Is that your idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Pilate, sort of exacerbated here. Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. 
If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. Now go back. What did he just stop Peter from leading? A fight. Put that sword away. No, sir. I'm going to heal the the ear that was cut off. But now my kingdom is from another place. Now, Pilate's getting scared right here. And I want you to think about Pilate's fear. And we're going to talk about it in just a minute. Verse 37. You are a king then, Pilate says. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Verse 38. I think um, Pilate is probably in some measure of like despair here. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. So what is he saying now? So he, he's, he was inside. He's talking to Jesus. He's having this conversation. He's ascertained, oh man, this guy really is a king. That means Pilate has cause to fear. Okay, so Pilate then goes back out and he says to him, um, I don't find any reason to charge him. And then verse 39, he comes up with this idea. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? So I think in this moment, Pilate is trying to come out. He's attempting to say, hey, I can't find any reason that we should crucify him. Um, uh, So here, I got an idea that's going to get me off the hook, and I'm not going to have to kill this guy, Jesus, because my wife's had a dream, and I'm a little nervous, and I don't understand what's going on. And I think Pilate could actually see through what's happening in this moment, and he could see their envy. He could see their jealousy. He can see their hatred. He can't find any charge that actually holds water. He can't figure out why he would kill this Jesus. And so he comes up with this idea and says, oh, I remember that every Passover I set a prisoner free. Okay, so then he goes, all right, uh, let's read it. It's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release this Jesus, this king of the Jews? Now, what's interesting, verse 40, they shout back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Okay, let's pause right there. Let's try to unpack two things, and then I'm going to shift into um, chapter 19. All right. Um, here's what I want you to begin um, to see about the Jews. Were the Jews well-meaning? As a whole, as a nation, were the Jews well-meaning? Yeah. You think they were good people? Yeah. They obeyed the Mosaic law. Do you think they had desires that they would live peacefully in the land? Yeah. You think they wanted to have, raise families and grow crops and do their thing and like, you know, go to the store and come home and, you know, did they want peaceful lives? Yeah. Do you, do you think that they basically wanted to bless people um, and, and wouldn't hurt anybody unless they were hurt? I'd say so. Are, are, they, are they a peace-loving um, people at this point in time? Yes. Now, what's fascinating to me is just a couple days prior, you have them yelling Hosanna, which you can go back and listen to that if you, if you want to, but them yelling Hosanna, which is save us now, which I proposed to you as a political slogan. And Jesus came in and went, no, 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 I'm no politician. I'm establishing the kingdom, the unseen kingdom that is going to rule for all eternity. It's way bigger than Rome. It's way bigger than Herod. Um, so y- you have all of a sudden, Jesus is then before Pilate, and you've got these Jews who have all gathered 
turnaround right before dawn, and all of a sudden what is seething out of them is absolute hatred. So here's what I want you to wrestle with, because we're, we're actually going to take a look this morning at the hatred of the Jews. We're going to take a look at Barabbas versus Jesus, why that whole concept, whose kingdom are you going to build? And then we're going to take a look at the fear of Pilate, and then we're going to try to pivot it back around, and how does it apply to our hearts now? So hatred of the Jews. Um, I'm going, why is this mob, um, why have they turned from this save us now to crucify him? Um, why are they even, when there's a known criminal named Barabbas, and, and Pilate is saying, hey, I'll set Jesus free or I'll set Barabbas free. Jesus has done nothing. He's never hurt anybody. He's never hit anybody. He's ne- I mean, he has never done anything. He's never even had a weapon that I can find. Um, and then you have Barabbas, who's a known, like, um, uh, he's caused uprising. He's caused revolts. And the people uh, are now chanting to set free Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Why? It's worth our, like, time to ponder what has happened in the hearts of minds of these Jewish people, who I would say to you are not totally unlike us, but I think what's happened inside of them is the enemy has begun to blind them. And if that's not familiar language to you, from Genesis to Revelation, if, if you're new to the church, if you're new to the Bible, um, there is a fallen angel named Satan who is our enemy. And I think what I would propose to you here is there's this lie that has probably taken root in the hearts of these Jewish people that God's rejected them. Well, if God didn't reject us, he would have had, you know, the Messiah come and set up his kingdom and overthrow Rome and overthrow Herod. God must have forgotten about me. Now go there just a minute. You can already sense the pivot, right? How often do we say, God, you must have forgotten about me or this wouldn't be happening. They've probably embraced a lie that God doesn't love them. They've probably embraced a lie that this Messiah is never going to come. There's been 400 years of silence in terms of Yahweh speaking to them in the Old Testament. And they've probably come to believe that this God is hardened. This God is angry. This God doesn't love them. This God isn't going to rescue them. And so what's happened inside of them is they've responded to these things that they've begun to believe to be true, even though they're contrary to Genesis to Malachi, the Old Testament Bible that they had at this time. So these lies are contrary to what they read in Scripture, but I think over time, if we're not careful, the difficulties in our lives naturally harden our hearts. And if we're not careful, when we're hurt, what happens when you're hurt? Let me just talk about me a second. What happens when Michael's hurt? I get, usually act angry. I usually put on this like little anger front. But really, I'm hurt. If I don't deal with that hurt and I don't deal uh, with that anger um, or if I don't deal with that disappointment, um, Hebrews 12.15 would actually tell me that a root of bitterness or a root of unforgiveness can go down into my heart. Okay, so let's just make a proposition here. Um, Hurt, um, unforgiveness, bitterness, and then I'm even going to propose to you hatred because that's what I see seething out of these Jews here is hatred, um, is what happens when we get hurt by people and over time we don't let the Holy Spirit come in and heal our hearts. You hear me? So uh, I talk to a lot of people um, in our church, in other churches, and I find how I'm amazed, and I'm not amazed because I know my heart and I know other people's hearts, but I'm amazed at how many people are hurt by church. Is it okay to be hurt by church? Absolutely. Is it okay to go talk to one, 
maybe two people, about being hurt by church? Is it okay to live in your church hurt for 12 months? Is it okay to sit down and talk to someone and authentically feel the depth of pain, the depth of betrayal, the depth of disappointment, the depth of rejection? Is that okay? Yes. Is it healthy? Yes. But there comes a point that if we're not careful as people, that our hurt can give way to anger, and our anger can give way to disappointment and bitterness, and our bitterness can take root in our hearts, and it can grow up as hatred. And all of a sudden, the very king that came to save us, the king of life, the king of joy, the king of peace, the king of hope, that came to liberate these Jewish people are looking at him, and they're yelling out of their own hurt, out of their own woundedness, they're yelling, Crucify him! You hear me? So now, now, now take this, take the page, and sort of flip it, and let it become a mirror into which you look. I was on a men's, I'm, I'm leading this um, 12 months, a 12 month long um, men's discipleship group. Um, and it's a small group of guys, we're sharing deeply, we're going through a book a month. It's been like, it's powerful. We got together, we were on a little retreat over the weekend, and everyone began to share um, their story. And guess what? Every single person, all 11 of us, me included, the story um, by which they came to faith in Jesus is full of, guess what? Hurt. Disappointment. Fathers, mothers, school teachers, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles. And what's amazing is the Lord it became so clear to me listening to everybody's story that the Lord allows um, hurt at points in our lives actually to get us to look to him to heal. And I'm amazed as I listened to the, like, like I sat in my, I had a little notebook and I listened. Every, every guy had 30 to 45 minutes and they shared their story, like in depth. Like we were like, oh man, that's amazing. But I, I, I would draw a line sometimes in my notebook and I'd begin to like a timeline of their life and I'd begin to go, okay, hurt, something happened here, something happened here. And what was amazing is when they were experiencing the deepest pain and rejection of their lives was simultaneously when they began to be most close and feel most intimately connected to this Jesus. It's amazing. Now, go back to the Jews. The Jews are sitting here. This king has come to set them free. This king has come to usher them into life. This king has come to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures that they have memorized. And this king has come to lead them out of their exterior religious system into freedom and life internally in Christ Jesus, to lift this burden of the Mosaic law and the rules they live under off of them and let them experience true freedom in Jesus. And he comes and he is kind and he is gentle and he is gracious. At times he's firm. At times they don't understand. And when given the opportunity to kill a known violent criminal or kill him, they say, crucify. If we're not careful, our own hearts under hurt and disappointment and becoming bitterness and maybe even hatred can uh, rise up against Jesus in the very same way. 
What's amazing to me, and we're going to see it here in the latter portions of the verses in chapter 19 that we are going to read here. But these Jews, I would say, began by hating Jesus. You can hear it. You can see it. No, they shouted, give us Barabbas. But this hatred grows into a massive hysteria of madness and bitterness. And I can almost see their faces twisted and their souls almost possessed by the ferocity of their hatred. You might want to make a little note making notes in your Bible or in your wherever on your phone in your notebook Lord Jesus would you search my heart is there anger or hurt or disappointment or bitterness or perhaps even hatred inside of me and let me say something with like crystalline clarity to you hatred will render the power and presence of the Lord Jesus in your heart and life now void Will the Holy Spirit stay in a place and fill a place that has grown toxic with the choice to hate? No. The Holy Spirit is a gentle, you know, go, if I'm not wanted, if, I choo- if you're choosing your hatred over choosing me, if you're going to choose Barabbas over choosing Jesus, then I will quietly withdraw. I think what's sad to me, I've actually seen it in my heart. I've seen it in Abby's heart. I've seen it in our marriage and even in our journey together is no matter how joy-filled a person's circumstances are, no matter how much capacity for happiness, when there's seeds of hatred or seeds of bitterness that linger from childhood or from marriage or from kids or perhaps a, a lost child or a child that's left you or you fill in the blank, right? When those seeds linger, it often renders the, hum- the person's capacity to experience the joy of God, the happiness of God, the presence of God, and to even smile and love life. It, re- it can render it void. It's, it's sobering, actually. But there's also an invitation here into the fullness of Jesus. Is it okay to disagree or dislike what God is doing? Yes. It's okay to tell him. Talk to him, unfold it, write it down, journal it, pray it, get somebody that you trust and tell them. It's okay to walk through hurt. It's okay to walk through pain, but church, hear me. It's not okay to stay not okay forever. You hear me? Like the actual goal of walking with Jesus is that we would become progressively more intimately acquainted with him, more uh, aware of even of who we are, more intimate with the brothers and sisters with, with which we walk, and more whole as people so that we can encourage other people in the journey. Yeah? That's what I want to do. Okay. All right, so um, <clears throat> let me say it like this. You may have been a victim. Most of us have been a victim at one point or another in our lives. You may have been a victim, but you do not have to live as a victim, okay? You don't have to let your anger or your hurt or your bitterness take root so much in your heart that it's the only thing you can taste and see and smell. Like, hear me, people. There is something that that the purposes of God in and through your life can be rendered void by us refusing to walk through our own hurt, disappointment, and bitterness. These Jews missed Jesus. Now, let me say, in the fullness of time, in the bookends of God's sovereignty, did he know exactly what he was doing? Yes. Did he know and set up Jesus to be crucified, becoming a a picture of the Old Testament lamb, becoming the lamb of God, slain for your sin and mine once and for all? 
Yes, in the bookends of God's sovereignty. But what I love is in the bookends of God's sovereignty, he's reaching out to Pilate to the last minute. He's reaching out to Judas to the last minute. He's reaching out to these Jews to the last minute. And it's like God is such a God of love and kindness and grace and pursuit that he will not give up on anyone until the very last moment when it's over. He will continue to reach out. Some of you have kids that maybe you're estranged from or a spouse or a brother or a sister. And I want to tell you, make like Jesus. Forgive them and choose to love them unconditionally no matter how bad they've hurt you. Pursue them in prayer. Go after them. Drop them a note in the mail. Send them a text message. Maybe they don't respond. Maybe they say something nasty back to you. What do you do? You forgive and keep loving. It's what Jesus did with you and I. It's what we see him doing with Pilate. It's what we see him doing with the Jews. The other thing I want to point out here is the hatred of the Jews makes them lose all sense of proportion. In Matthew 23, 24, Jesus actually said, you blind guides. So he's saying, you blind shepherds, you evil leaders, um, you strain out a gnat. How small is a gnat? So they're using a sieve to strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What's he saying? You've got this group of religious leaders who's saying, well, we don't want to go into Pilate's house because we're going to be unclean and then we can't eat Passover. Yet, crucify him! You hear the, you hear the hypocrisy? The Jews actually twisted and lied, and we're going to see it here in just a minute, but they changed the charges against Jesus. I propose to you, this is a terrible picture of disappointment and hurt gone amuck into a frenzied mob of shrieking fanatics. In their vast hatred, they forgot their identity. I could tell you story after story in my own life, in my own hurt and disappointment at points where for a season I lost my identity as a son of the king. They forgot all their mercy. They forgot their loving kindness. They forgot their justice. They forgot their sense of proportion. They forgot their principles. They forgot even God. And I'm not sure if there's ever such a vivid picture of a group of people who were offered so much and adamantly refused to the point where they yelled crucify and killed the king of life. Okay. I should probably just say quickly before we move on to this next section, how do you deal with disappointment, hurt, anger, bitterness? How do you deal with it? Number one, it's a process. Um, Number two, all things, all serious wounds take time to heal. Just be at peace. It just takes time. Well, Michael, I've been working on this for two years. Well, you might be working on it for another two. I mean, you just really might. Um, Number three, you confess first to him. I, I like my knees. Um, simply because it's an exterior demonstration of a heart posture that's surrendered to him. It reminds me that he's in control and I'm not. It reminds me that I need his love, I need his forgiveness, I need his grace. And so when the Lord convicts me of something, sometimes I'll go down and go, Father, would you forgive me? So you're asking and then you're choosing to forgive. Lord, would you empower me to forgive? Would you empower me to let go? Would you empower me to let go of the hurt? Would you empower me to, you know? And, and so is it a process? Yes. Might you need to go see a counselor? Yeah. Go see a counselor. Might you need to go talk to a friend? Yeah. Might you need to bring it up with two or three trusted friends and say, hey, I need some help because I can't see what I can't see? Yes. 
Like that is actually the body of Christ at work. If you are feeling bound in something, then learn to walk one with another. We have organized groups for this, uh, like CR. Thank you, Paul and Denise. But bigger than that, this is life in Jesus. You hear me? I mean, this is actually how you're hurting. And you call up David and Monica and go, David and Monica, can I come over to your house and share a few things? And can you pray for me? How does healing actually happen? Just like that. It requires some humility. It requires some grace. It requires sharing. It might require sharing your story. You might feel embarrassed or ashamed or uncomfortable. Guess what? That's when the power and presence of Jesus is available most powerfully in your life. And then, 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 we might become a real church. That's life together in Jesus. Okay. Let me just make a comment or two on Barabbas. I'm not going to stay here a long time. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at verse 40. They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Um, I read one historian, I can't prove it, but it's a really beautiful idea, so I'm gonna tell you because I loved it. But one historian, and it's only one, I can't even find a second, but he said that Barabbas, uh, when he was set free, he actually followed King Jesus um, up the Via Della Rosa, up the, uh, up the road um, to Golgotha, followed from a distance, and from the base of um, the hill called Golgotha, he watched Jesus uh, pounded into the cross. He watched the cross stood up and there at a distance, he recognized that Jesus died in whose place? And he gave his heart to the king. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's definitely a picture of what this gospel is saying and representing. I think what broke my heart as I read this and I let Jesus even sift my own heart is um, Barabbas uh, sort of represents to me an alternative um, fulfilling of sort of worldly ambitions and dreams, the gratification of our human lusts or hungers, even a nationalistic dream, um, it, perhaps even a political dream, um, a political kingdom. And you have Jesus standing in stark contrast to Barabbas, offering us his way of truth, his way of life that begins with confession and repentance, leads along this path of daily uh, surrender. And on the surface, this path is much less popular. It's much less hip. It's much less cool. It doesn't Instagram nearly as well. But at the end, it produces life inside of you. And when you see a person or a couple or a family or a church that truly is experiencing the life-changing power and presence of the Lord Jesus, it is like, wow, I want some of that. I want to know Jesus like that. I want to experience his life-giving resurrection and power inside of me. And so when I listen to these, these Jews gathered around and he's going, uh, do, you, do you want Jesus or do you want Barabbas? And they're yelling Barabbas. It's like they are clamoring for their own will and way. They are clamoring, clamoring for their own desires. They are clamoring for what they want, when they want it, and they are adamantly rejecting God. And it's a heartbreak to me because I see the temptation in every one of our lives, mine included, where you're going to choose King Barabbas or King Jesus, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness. Okay, let's keep going. I'm in chapter 19 now. I'm going to read uh, verse 1, and I'm going to try to go through 16. We're going to see how I do. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Um, 
The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe, and they went to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him on the face. A flog here in this day is like a, a braided leather cord. It's got these long braided leather cords going off of it. At each of the ends, there would often be a piece of lead, a piece of rock, a shard of broken pottery, um, a piece of metal. And so a person would uh, usually um, end up like this, lashed to a pole, or like this, lashed to a pole. But either way, their back is exposed. And then a Roman soldier would come up, and they would actually flog them um, like this. And I think, if you read the other Gospels, I don't want to linger here long, but I think what Pilate is actually trying to do is he's trying to entreat the Jews going, hey, I will flog this guy, but then let him live. And you're going to find out why. We're going to keep going on that. But when they, uh, there's, there's tons of historical accounts. When someone was flogged like this, it would have literally shredded their entire back. There probably was not a shred of skin left on the back of Christ Jesus. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. This isn't like our little North Carolina thorns that are yay big. This is like Middle Eastern thorns that are like yay big. And they're big and hard and woody. So they would have twisted it together and they would have mashed it on his head. And it would have penetrated his scalp in multiple different places and he would have been bloody. So Jesus is bloody here. His back is without skin. Um, And and then I, I hate this part. Just being honest, this makes everything in me crawl. They clothed him in a purple robe and they went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him on the face. They mocked him. I would actually say to us, on the best day, mocking is evil and probably reveals the worst of the human heart. And if you flip this, they are actually right. He is the king of the Jews. I look at these Roman soldiers like some possessed minions of darkness, mocking the Lord of light, the Lord of hope, the Lord of peace, the Lord of glory, the Lord of joy. And what does Jesus do? Quietly endures without a word. Verse 4, once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, look, I'm bringing him out to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. What's Pilate trying to do? Let him go. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. As soon as the chief priest and the rulers of the officials saw, saw, saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. Here's where they become this maddened, angry, hate-filled group. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Let's he try again. I don't want to kill him. That's what he's saying. The Jews insisted we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Now, there it is, verse 8. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Um, it's abundantly clear to me um, that Pilate knew the charges of, of, uh, of the Jews against Jesus were all trumped up. They were a series of lies that he knew Jesus was innocent. Um, and he seems both impressed with Jesus and not wanting to contemn Jesus. But the question is, why does he keep, um, he keeps trying? So the question becomes, why in the end does he give in to his fear and kill Jesus? Okay, that's what we're, that's what we're asking, thinking about, resonating on. Verse 9, he went back inside the palace. Um, Where do you come from? So who's he asking this to? 
Jesus. Remember, he's back inside. Where do you come from? He's trying to find out who this guy is. Um, uh, Jesus gave no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Pilate's, Pilate's desperate here. Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if we're not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. There it is again. But the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Now, who's Caesar? The emperor of Rome. He's the ultimate person that Pilate answers to. Verse 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on a judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement. And it was the day of preparation of Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Okay, let's talk about Pilate here for just a minute. Um, in Matthew, Pilate actually washes his hands in front of the crowd and says, I wash my hands of this man's blood. I want nothing to do with it. He tries everything he can do to get out of crucifying Jesus. He tried to release Jesus on the grounds of the Passover criminal. He tried to pacify the Jews by scourging Jesus with this cat of nine tails, by beating his back, um, he, hoping to compromise and release Jesus. And so the question that I began to dig into is why in the world did Pilate, who wanted to set Jesus free so many times, end up killing him? What was he so afraid of? And if you dig into Pilate's history, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but there were three things in Pilate's history. Pilate was a super successful, young, up-and-coming military leader and governor. Very successful, very respected. Palestine was notoriously hard, and so Rome looked at uh, this super successful young leader and said, go and get a whole thing under control. So Pilate makes the journey, sails or travels by road to Jerusalem. He sets up his kingdom, and while he was there, there's these three major incidents that happened where Pilate mismanaged or poorly negotiates the Palestinian people and the Jewish people. And I'm not going to go into them, but essentially what happened is in all three incidences, um, Pilate did something and there was a massive uprising and revolt and the entirety of the city of Jerusalem three times was almost entirely ransacked, all because of Pilate. So Rome had to get involved and they threatened Pilate. If a big uprising like this happens again, guess what? You're toast. Okay, so when Pilate is standing here and he's looking at all these religious leaders, he's looking at this uprising happening, he's looking at this mad, angry, hate-filled group of people yelling, crucify him. And he's like, this guy is innocent. Like I find nothing, no reason to crucify him. Yet what's going on inside of Pilate is he is so afraid that he's gonna what? Lose his job, lose his livelihood, lose his status, lose his invitation to the dinner party Friday night, lose his, come on, go there. He's afraid. He is afraid that he is going to lose. And in the end, it's actually um, Pilate's fear that makes him or positions him in a spot where he refuses to stand up against the Jews. He refuses to quell their demand to kill this Jesus because of this fear. I, I couldn't help. I just paused for a minute and I went, and again, you got the bookends of God's sovereignty. Did God know that Pilate would end up killing Jesus? Yes. If Pilate chose Jesus like the dream to his wife would suggest he could have, 
Would God have raised up someone else? Yes. His, his ultimate plan was not going to be thwarted. But I want you to understand that in the bookends of God's ultimate sovereign plan, he's got this tender, merciful heart where he's always reaching out. And I couldn't help but wonder, I wonder if in that moment, Pilate had gone, come what will, lose my job, lose my money, lose my status, lose my position, be hated by Rome, thrown in jail. I'm going to choose to trust my life and future to this Lord of life who was apparently king. What would have happened to Pilate and his family? If I could wrap that section with one little statement, it would be this. The fear of Pilate kept him from coming to this loving, kind Savior. Pilate feared Caesar more than God. Pilate feared failure more than God. Pilate feared the Jews more than God. Pilate feared for the loss of his life and future more than God. And it may have cost him eternity. How many times do we as believers take up our spot full, not of faith in Jesus and the person of Jesus, but full of our own fear? And we choose to sit in our fear, fear of losing reputation, job, income, um, covering, friendship. What will they think of me if I tell them I'm a Christian? We fear, and instead of taking our place courageously, we let the enemy push us down under our fear. Jesus says, fear not, fear not, fear not, again and again. Let's pivot into this as I wrap up. I want you to think of King Jesus here for a minute. I want you to think of his majesty. I think of Jesus sitting here almost totally quiet. His regality, he is regal, he is sovereign, his sheer confidence, unflappable in the face of death, unflappable in the face of physical pain. I, you know, I wonder if when Jesus was beaten, did he cry out? I almost doubt it. He is absolutely unflappable under pain, unflappable under rejection. He so knows who he is. He speaks even under duress with such clarity and simplicity. My kingdom is not the kingdom of this world. And when he says a chapter earlier, he says, I am he, he's referencing, I am God. I am the great I am. It's this steely resolve in Jesus. And if I could like, if, and I'm, I'm totally reading into the text and I'm putting words into the mouth of Jesus. This is strictly Michael, but I can imagine Imagine inside the mind of Jesus, he's going, today I will go to hell and break the power of sin and death. I'm going to break the power of hurt. I'm going to break the power of pain. I'm going to break the power of tears and suffering. And I'm going to begin to right all that is wrong in the world. I'm going to break the lie that God doesn't love you and me and all the people for all time. I'm going to break the lie that God isn't good and he isn't gracious and he isn't kind and he isn't long suffering. And I'm going to set back truth, all truth for all time. And today we, we, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, are going to begin to rescue those lost in pain, lost in addiction, lost in hopelessness, lost in pride, lost in nice cars and beautiful homes, lost. Today Satan will be put in his place, and you, Pontius Pilate, are simply a pawn because the kingdom of God and the kingdom of righteousness will be established on the earth, and all people people for all time will have the ability to access the presence and the person and the power of this King Jesus and experience lives that are transformed and are never the same. 
I can only imagine Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And one day when I stand before him in all heaven and eternity, I want to ask in this moment, in this moment, you've got no skin on your back. Blood is going down your face. You've been mocked. You've been hated. You've been abandoned by all your friends. No one is left there. You have become, you are becoming the lamb of God for all eternity. What is going through your mind? And I don't know, I can't say for sure, but I imagine that my Jesus will look back at me in that moment and he will say, every person from the beginning of time until the end of time passed through. And I went, I will endure the cross for you and for you and for you and for you and for you. And for those that chose him and will choose him and for those that rejected him, he endured the cross for the joy of relationship with us set beyond. As we close today, I suppose there's a, just a couple of things. If you're a long-standing believer in the room, if you're a veteran of faith in Jesus, I would urge you to allow the Holy Spirit to sift your heart and go, Lord, is there any anger, hurt, bitterness, hatred in my heart that is akin to that of the Jews yelling, crucify him, crucify him. If you're here and you've known Jesus a long time, I'd encourage you to also look at your heart and go, Lord, is there fear inside of me? Fear like Pontius Pilate labored under where I am refusing to do what so clearly you've called me to do because I'm afraid of the loss or the consequences. Make a note, ask him. If you're here and whether you're in Jesus or whether you've never met this Jesus, I'd encourage you to shift your gaze off of your stuff, your hurt, your pain, and get it on this steely resolve of this God to go to the cross to set you free from sin and death. Worship team, would you guys come out? And as they come, we're going to close in a song. But Matthew 10, 9 and 10 actually says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess and are saved. Would everyone stand with me for a moment as we close? Wes, y'all can start playing whenever you're ready. As a church, we're called to two things. We're called to disciple believers and lead lost people to Jesus. And I want to provide an opportunity, if you're in the room or if you're online and you've never met this Jesus, maybe you've never heard somebody talk about Jesus like this. This is a God that knows you, that loves you, that died for you and wants to set you free. I'm not here to really make you comfortable. I'm here to get you into heaven. I'm here to get you into relationship with Jesus now. I'm here to help Jesus get heaven into you now. If you're here and you go, Michael, I've never met this Jesus, 
and I want to right now. I want to surrender my life to him. Would you raise your hand? I'm just going to lead you through a prayer. I'm not going to make you come forward. You can stay in your seat. I realize people are looking around. I realize that's uncomfortable. We're all Jesus people, so you're in good company. Is there anybody who can, I want to surrender my life to Jesus today. If you're online and you want to give your life to Jesus, just put it in the chat. We'll see if we can get in touch with you. Have a follow-up call. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.